Well, let me, let me pray and ask for God's help to help us understand a little bit. God, we, we do ask for your help, that your spirit would do his work of opening our, our minds, helping our minds to overcome even the curse of sin in our minds as we think, to think rightly. I pray that some of these concepts would not be um, so hard to understand that it would be discouraging, but they, that they would actually be very encouraging and easy to grasp. Would you do that work of opening eyes and um, helping us understand? And the reason we want to understand these things is to be able to be able to give an answer for the hope that's in us, but also to encourage our souls to know that we have a reasonable faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so two, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple of answers or questions submitted, and one of them was um, from Denise, saying that, you know, one of the conversations she has with one of her relatives is that they, they push back, well, where did God come from? If, if the universe was all created by God, where in the world did he come from? And the, the problem with asking that question that way is that it's kind of, it's actually illogical. You're like, wait, what? why not? It sounds like a pretty logical question to me. Well, because the definition of who God says he is, is that he says he's the created one. Or he's the uncreated one. We are the created ones. He's the created one. Asking who made God is like asking who is the bachelor married to. You understand that? Because the definition of the word bachelor means unmarried. It doesn't make any sense to ask who is the bachelor married to. In the same way, it doesn't make any sense to say who created the creator. Is that help but to be honest i don't think um this question that that person's asking denise is really getting at that um and i don't think they're also asking like the way a child would ask like how many have had your your children come to you and say well where did god come from has anybody mine have okay (laughs) we have and when you tell them from nowhere god created all things and he's always existed they go okay thank you Right? It's not till they get a little bit older and their brain starts to try to wrestle with things. And then, you know, sin also has an effect on our thinking. And then they, they start to wrestle with this. This isn't that question that a child is asking in simple faith. Of just, okay, where did the God come from? And you tell him, nowhere. He's always existed. I think a better way of asking this question, and what this person asking Denise may be asking is this. Uh, Wesley, can you click? It's lost it again. There we go. Think about this. This is that really kind of asking, I think, the same question that this person is asking Denise. If the universe needs a cause, there has to be some cause behind the universe, then why doesn't God need a cause? And if God doesn't need a cause, then why, shouldn't, why should the universe even need a cause? So I don't want to go any further until we make sure we understand that question. Does ever, anybody have any questions about that question? Does that make sense? I think this is really what they're asking. If the universe needed a cause, then why wouldn't God need a cause? If everything needs a cause, the law of cause and effect, 
right? If everything needs a cause, then why wouldn't God need a cause? Does everybody at least understand the question? I think that's really where they're getting at, Matt. To throw, to throw something else in there, Aristotle, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead. Nope, I wasn't going to bring him up. But. Okay. Aristotle brought up this point because everything does need a cause. But Are you saying reason? I'm really having that. Okay, I was hoping everybody would get a, a yeah. really ask your question here. The cause does not mean like a reason. If, if you think about it like dominoes, so if we look at, if you see a domino tipping over, your mind goes, what tipped that domino over? That's really kind of what the question is. Mm-hmm. And then if you go, okay, well, what tipped that, you know, that something must have tipped that domino over to tip that domino over. And so your brain starts working backwards. And that Aristotle brought this question up when he said, you know, you, you, can, you can do that. You can keep going back and you say, well, if this came from something else. And so that's the, does the universe have a cause that God created it with what we say. But, but then why, and that's what I think you're asking. Yes. And so I'm not going to go where Aristotle went yet, but I, but that's kind of the, if you see a domino tipping over, you go, what caused that domino? Where did all this come from? Right. So there has to be someone who started that domino. Essentially, Aristotle came to this saying there must have been a first mover. Yeah, the unmoved mover. The unmoved mover. So there was something moving at the at least at the very beginning. Okay. Well, I, I think this is the real question that's being asked. And I want to give you some logic, an argument here to respond to that. All right. So the universe, the answer is that the universe must have a cause because, and this is an argument, so listen to all three points and then we can talk about it. Everything that has a beginning has a cause, right? Everything that has a beginning has something that started it. Can you think of anything that doesn't have something that started it? Second argument well, the universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. If everything that has a beginning must have a cause that caused it to begin, a mover, and we say the universe has a beginning, then logically you have to say the universe has a cause. Do you see that, that logic there? You, that is an argument that's unassailable. If you took my geometry class growing up, you would have been introduced to this logic right here. This is... Unfortunately, they don't do it anymore. (laughs) They don't, unfortunately, teach this kind of logic. So when you have an argument like this, we call this a valid argument. You have two, what we call propositions or premises, and then a conclusion. And you connect those two together. No one can argue that that argument, that that line of thinking, nobody can say that it's illogical. It actually makes complete sense. So how do you then deal with an argument like this? If someone comes to you and you tell them this and they don't like it, what they need to do is challenge these first two points, whether they're true or false. Because if the first one is true and the second one is true, the third one has to be true. So when you have, this is, this is called a, a logical argument. The fancy word is syllogism, whatever. 
The point is, is the conclusion, if the first two premises are true, this one must be true. So then the real question becomes, how, do, how would someone, like this, this relative of Denise's, what would they challenge? Well, they would need to challenge one of these two points to say one of these two points are false. Which of these two points do you think they would go after to say one of these is false? The, the second one, right? That the universe has a beginning, right? But do, does, the, does secular reasoning say that the universe has a beginning? It does. What does it call it? Boom. Is that what the Big Bang, right? So even if they don't believe in a, um, the, 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 the account of the Bible in Genesis, they'll at least say that there was some kind of beginning. And they have to. Um, they actually have to say that there's some kind of beginning, whether it's the Big Bang or it's a God who spoke. They, they, because their minds keep going like Aristotle, there had to be something that started all this. And even all of their arguments, they get into fancy stuff called quantum mechanics. And the problem is, is even in those arguments, they're talking about something that still existed in order for that thing, next thing to come about. Um, let me just look at my nose, make sure I'm not getting lost here. So here's the thing. So let's talk about how they challenge, how we can prove that this universe, that our, the universe we live in has a beginning. And this is, your head's probably already going, ah! So bear with me here. <laughs> the universe, if we're going to say the universe has a beginning, we can actually demonstrate that, that the universe has a beginning. The universe is made up of three things, time, matter, and space. And even Einstein's theory of relativity links time to space and matter. So there's some kind of relationship there. They're connected, and that's important because if matter and space are connected to time, then time had to have a beginning as well. We're recording this. You can come back and listen to it. Plus, um, all of this, this answer is coming. It's summarized in just one little, like three pages in this, little, this book here that I recommend. And then if, you, if that answer is like, not sufficient for you and you want a deeper, more technical answer, this article here, feel free to come and get a copy and I can make more copies for you if you want to hand them out. But time can be shown to have had a beginning as well because Einstein helps us see that time is related to space and matter as well. And that means that um, God must have created it. Something must have created it. There must have been a beginning to time. So in true science, and I bring this up because of our current day and age, <laughs> true science, um, you have things called hypotheses, mm-hmm. right? And then hypotheses are worked out in experiments, and then you develop a theory. Mm-hmm. And over time, that theory can be tested. And if that theory is tested long enough, it becomes, then we start to talk about it as facts. And we have that process, that, that scientific process, right? Hypotheses lead to theories, and theories have to be proven. And if they are proven, they, then they become accepted fact over time. And then there's also these things called laws. Like, what's a law that we're all experiencing right now? There's a couple of them. 
Gravity. Gravity. Thank you. Exactly. It's a thing, right? It's a thing that we, which it does its thing. What's another one that we talked about last week? Did we, did we talk about this one? No, we didn't. My brain was already there. So there's these things called the laws of thermodynamics, and two of them help us in thinking through how in the world is it that the universe had a beginning? Okay, this is really heavy stuff. The total amount of mass energy in the universe is constant. I'm going to summarize what this means in, in, in maybe simple words. The second one is that the amount of energy in the universe that's available to do stuff with is running down. And we call that entropy. All right? So what that first one is basically saying is there's a fixed amount of energy in this world. Like if you watch the Marvel comics, you think about some of the, the cool stuff where they're actually almost maybe creating energy. doesn't happen. There's a fixed amount of energy. It's only a fixed amount of energy. And part of that, only part of that is available for doing things with. Powering, using, doing work, we call that, right? So that second part is that amount of energy that we have to do work with is actually decreasing. It's, it's why things fall apart, okay? So what does this imply this implies, here I'll let you stare at that for a little bit, but let me read what this means. This means that the universe cannot have existed forever. If there's a fixed amount of energy and that energy that's available for work is decreasing, and, and scientists will not disagree with those two, are, those two points. That's what they call laws. Just like gravity, it's a fixed amount of energy and it's decreasing, called entropy. Well, it means that there, the universe cannot have existed for other, forever. Otherwise, it would have already exhausted, and I'm reading here, all usable energy and reached what is known as heat death. In other words, we'll eventually run out of energy to work with. And if that's the case, then there must have been a starting point with a fixed amount of usable energy. So let me show you here, put on the diagram here. And this is from that book, is why it looks kind of fuzzy. You think about the amount of energy in the universe. This is like indicating how much energy there is. And then over time, the first law says that there is a fixed amount that hasn't changed. But the amount that's available to work over time is going down. And the period of time that we've been doing scientific research, we have noticed that, right? We actually look at that scientific research. We all know that because some of us here are working with walking with canes, <laughs> right? And I can't hear as well anymore. The amount where things are falling apart. If there was a fixed amount of energy and it's going down, that means at some point it had to start and will eventually stop. This wouldn't go on forever and ever. It has to. Otherwise, these fixed laws don't even make sense. Todd. What about the possibility here of that energy being renewable per item of human being? Like, obviously, when a person is born, they have, they have right, potentially sir. the same amount of energy yeah. as 
the person that was born previous to them. So each time a person born, that energy level is renewed, or is it pulling from the that threshold of? That's a great question. And, and Matt told me this was going to happen. When we start <laughs> wrestling with this, we're going to get other questions, right? But were you going to say something? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that. You, you, well, you think about the fact that all, all of our energy comes from the c consumption of other energy. So we're, we're consuming things. He's consuming coffee. Um, you, know, I'm, you know, whatever we're consuming, that's where our energy comes from. But there's, a, there's still a limited amount available in our universe and we have a limited amount available on our planet which this is where you know those climate people they, they there is one point there we're going to eventually we're going to run out of things to to burn or consume mm -hmm. or to grow or to get i mean eventually it's all going to same thing with our sun like it's burning eventually it's going to burn out right and so uh that energy that we have so my energy isn't like i've created i've started with a set amount it's like I, i'm just consuming the energy that's available to me to do anything you know there then I'm just totally speaking out of the you know what right now at this moment, okay? So this is my just idea, okay? <laughs> the next question we talk about is why are there mutations? Why are there bad things, right, falling apart? I think that's very much related to the amount of energy that is existing and the amount that's going down for work because things are falling apart and even birth defects are increasing over time. I'm sure if we had a really smart scientist in here, they may be able to say, yeah, that's definitely related in such and such and such a way. But I'm not going to claim that I know the answer to that one. And what's interesting about this argument is that any, like, you'll, get, you'll get questions about this from the average Joe, but people who are actual scientists, they, they know that this is an issue. Right. You know, they've got a pro they, they all know there's that problem. They know that, like I, I remember uh, Richard Dawkins, I think he... You know, as an atheist, he he tackled part of his book was tackling with this question, like, well, he knew this was a problem, mm -hmm. and so when they go back, they have to try to come up with solutions to that problem. You know, that's that point right there. They call the big bang, but they they go, I mean, they they have that problem. Well, what where that all that come from, right? Where did that come from? And they have that have to deal with that. Richard Dawkins, I think, is the one that his solution was. Um, you said a minute ago it was gravity. Well, you're right. But then that doesn't really answer it because then you go, well, where, where, where did that come from? You know, where, where, that, where that, I mean, you still have that problem. That's why Aristotle said, even if you answer that question with this other thing, maybe there's this other thing that did that, you still, that still leaves you with the same question, well, where did that come from? Yes. And eventually you have to have the answer of, well, something had to start, there had to have been, if that domino got tipped over by a domino before that, and that one got tipped over by a domino before that. There's got to be something back there that, that started the tipping. And that thing that started the tipping must have had mind yes. and will because nothing moved it. Yes. And that's, that's why. That's we, exactly yeah. it. Yeah. So is, is the what, new Green Deal going to help us? <laughs> is the new Green Deal going to help us? No, I guarantee it will not. So even if you don't get all that physics stuff, because I only get a tiny bit of it. This, let's pull it together and summarize in somewhat plain English for us, okay? The universe, including time, can be shown to have had a, have a, had a beginning. That's the point of all of that fancy scientific stuff that we, we can study and we should want to know better and learn, okay? Um, 
The point is, is that you can demonstrate that the universe had a beginning. That's the whole point of all of that. Second point is, it's unreasonable then to believe that something could begin to exist without a cause. It doesn't make sense to begin to, to think that something popped out of nothing without a cause. And even when we talk about creation in Genesis 1 and God creating out of nothing, he's the causer. He's the mover that caused it to happen. Right? He spoke it into existence. Then the universe, therefore, has to require a cause, a first mover. Just as Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Right? In the beginning, God. And then Romans 1.20. Do I have that? Somebody want to read that for me real quick out loud? Donnie's got it. He's got his app open. Romans 120. I got it if you didn't. Hey, working on it. <laughs> <laughs> the modern version of the attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And we have talked about that verse in our Sunday school time, right? So. The universe has to have a cause. And, and kids, like, if this stuff intrigues you, like the whole science part of that, I encourage you as Christians to learn physics, become physicists. This article is written by Jonathan Safardi, who was a PhD in chemistry. And brilliant. We need more super smart people that can answer the question like Todd had there. I mean, Matt did a good job, but, I mean, we're not scientists. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Um, okay, finally, God, as the creator of time, therefore is outside of time. If time had a beginning, God must be then outside of time because he created time. Therefore, he had no beginning in time, has always existed, and so he doesn't need a cause. Chew on that one. Tomorrow on Facebook, I'm going to post a link to a podcast that happened on Breakpoint this last week, right in the week before, where they talk about this. And it's really, they even get into a little bit more than I have. But here's what's interesting. God, through Solomon, wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that every human being knew this all along. Every human being has known this. They may not have been able to explain the science part, just like I struggle with that. But they knew that that last point, that God created, that he's always existed, and he doesn't need a cause. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, I don't think I put that on there. Yeah. Go ahead, Matt. Um, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's put eternity into every single person's heart. This understanding that there is an eternal God. And yet, and the last part of that, such that they can't figure God out. Yeah. <laughs> right? Okay, that's, that's a, a good start to that question. Um, I don't mean to, to lead you to think that that's the end of the, that question. Okay, both of these questions 
are questions that take a long time to think through and talk about and learn about. But I hope that gives you a good introduction to it. Um, the second question is this. I don't know why it's animating like that. <laughs> That's, I hate animations on PowerPoints. <laughs> so the second question was, remember we talked about in Genesis 1, it said that when God made everything, he said it's all very good. And if we know that God is still the one who makes us, and remember we read that verse like he's upholding all things by the word of his power, that must mean that he's constantly speaking, causing things to happen. Then, and if he's an all good God and all that he does is good, then why are there things like birth defects and mutations today? Um, and so while that first question I answered or tried to at least give you an introduction to is helpful for with this kind of book. There are people that um, talk, give answers even to this question in that kind of way. And we called it apologetics. I want to give you kind of a different approach to answering this question. And what I really want to give you is th the short answer is this. Okay. In Genesis 3, it tells us that somehow... This is the short answer, okay? In Genesis 3, it tells us that God must have changed the instructions in our DNA. From Genesis 1, where he says everything's very good, he must have changed something in his creation at Genesis 3. So that at that point, he began to do something different. Let me show you what I mean. I need your help again, Wes. It keeps leaving me. Thank you, sir. So that's really tiny. If you want to read in along in Genesis 3, verse 16, remember Eve is, and Adam have eaten the fruit. They're hiding. God comes and finds them. There's that whole, what have you done? And here's what God says to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, clearly, something has changed because in Genesis 1.31, he says all things, it's all very good. But you read that. Does this sound like um, in pain you shall bring forth children? Uh, where is this? Nice? Cursed is the ground. Is God saying that creation is now very good? No, he's not. He's saying it's not good anymore. Something has fallen. Man has fallen. He's changed something. Right? But that's the short answer. At, I have thought of that, and I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. I think his creation is still very good. It's just our interaction with it is no longer the perfection that it was created for us to be. You know, I, I get what you're saying, and I still think there's aspects that are still here in creation that that original blueprints... 
But the language right there says, cursed is the ground because of you. So the, uh, the, the ground itself has been cursed. Something is now in a bad state. It's now dying, which is just doing what God said it would do. It would, if you do this, death will come, he says. I think a good example is the mosquito. Oof. Like, that, that thing is clearly from, from hell. My children say that about spiders. So let me, let me get shortcut, though. That still that way that I answer that question is still kind of this approach, okay, apologetics. I think there's a bigger picture way to answer this question, and it has to do with looking at how the whole Bible, what God is doing in the story of history, okay? It's been said many times as a cliche that history is his story, but I think it's true. He started with, and we see this arc of what he's doing. And that's what we have to keep in mind when we think about these hard questions. Because it's really easy to get down into the weeds, pun intended there, um, and forget that God's doing something. And it should start with Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. And I'm just going to read it for you for the sake of time. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, now listen to this, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That verse right there has caused all kinds of disagreements for at least a thousand years, but probably a lot longer than that with different aspects about what in the world does it mean that he chose us. I don't want you to think about that one right now. I want you to think about that before the foundation of the world. That means before he made the world, he was thinking about you and me and what he was going to do and why you would exist. That must mean, and before the foundation of the world, it goes on in that chapter to say that he planned to send his son. That must mean that even though Genesis 1 is very good, and Genesis 3 is it falls, and you know what hits the fan for life for a long time, that he had a plan, and that he's working that plan. Okay? Theologians, and you, because we're all theologians. Everyone is a theologian. You may not have gone and got a master's degree on it, but that's okay. We're all thinking about God. Every single person thinks about God. Even the ones who say spend so much of their effort to prove that he doesn't exist. They're still spending so much time thinking about him, right? They talk about this story that God has going on in the Bible in four ways, starting with, oh, I did have it up there, creation, okay? We have to start there because it helps us understand what he was doing and what his original design was. And we know that it says in Hebrews 1.3 that he upholds the universe by his power. That must mean in some sense he still has some kind of creative power going on. But the purpose of the whole story is seen in Genesis 1 verse 27. Right? That image, these image bearers he would create would give him glory and have dominion and spread his glory across the face of the earth so that he would be glorified and they would be in him and enjoy him forever. That's what we see in creation, that the point was to be with God, to see his glory and live happily forever. 
that's the good story, right? But then we know the next part of the story is a really, really, really long chapter in the Bible. Running from Genesis 3 to about Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 22 and right? What happens in those two chapters I just talked about and John 22? Does anybody know? I may be getting those chapter numbers, but right about that end of every gospel, what do we read about? Somebody dies on a cross, right? Somebody, that, that chapter of fall begins with Adam and Eve sinning. And then the next chapter, the brother kills another brother. And it just gets off all going the wrong way for a long, long time. We call that the fall, right? But then it all leads up to that next chapter that starts at the end of every single one of those Gospels. And it just starts. It's called redemption. And Christ came. Do I have this verse written? I don't. I think I have it on the screen. I don't. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in Christ, it says in him, but I'm putting Christ in there because that's what it's talking about in the verse before. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That means you and me, but also the, the mosquitoes and spiders and the broken and the, the joints that are hurting. All, of thing, all those things. He's reconciling all those things, whether in heaven or earth, or I mean, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We called Jesus, because God does in 1 Corinthians, the second Adam. Because that first Adam was put in the garden and he messed up the test. He failed the test, didn't he? The second Adam comes and passes the test. It says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But redemption is a, longer, is a long chapter as well. Pat, Master Matt has talked about it a couple times in the last few weeks about this already and not yet. Redemption has started and he is slowly returning us to where he wants us to be. We're being brought to this point of what's called consummation that you read about at the end of the book of Revelation where all these things in 20, chapter 21, verse 5, Revelation 21, 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And in one sense, the book of Revelation is like a story of all of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And into the book, it has a scene, the whole picture put together. And it coming to a good end. And I want to close here with reading this really deep theological book. How many of you know this? You guys know this, don't you? I love this book. Adults, if you have not bought this children's story Bible book, you should. Okay? And read it. And read it to little ones that you know. But read it for yourself. He says, let me find page 17. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. 
It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that's come true in real life. And you see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There's lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child on which everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait, our story starts and it gets into going through the whole Bible in this little book. Okay. But I want to just help you see how at the end, and then he gets into the book of Revelation at the end. But I want to read to you from that, because this is really still answering Kathy's question. Because the whole Bible is a story answering why, if it was all so good, is it messed up? To help us see we need Jesus. We need this hero. But it's not the end of the story. It's taken us back to the garden, but a new garden. And if you remember anything from uh, the book of Revelation, John sees these different visions. And one of them is he sees, I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven. And from the sky, heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where is the sun? Where is the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has become untrue. And I see I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look, I'm making everything new. How do we answer that question about why everything is hard right now? You've got to keep that big picture in mind. What God is doing from before the foundation of the world is he wrote this story. And he wrote your story as part of that. Through all the pain and suffering, he's drawing you to him so that you'll be with him on that day. If you turn to his son, Jesus, your only hope, you turn to him and say, Jesus, you're my only hope, truly. Then you'll be in that last chapter where he's wiping away every tear and you're with him and it's like we were in the garden, but better. Okay, let me close and we can be dismissed. God, thank you that you are working all things and making all things new. You're redeeming us and we long for that day consummation. So we pray with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name we beg and pray. Amen.